Global Partners for Development proudly presents What Do You Understand? A deep dive into the many facets of philanthropy and development. Experts in their field will discuss an aspect of their work that they understand particularly well. Let's talk about big bets, innovation, social enterprises, large-scale humanitarian aid, and the fixation on ending things or solving humanity's greatest problems and the issues that arise while tackling it all. I am your host, Rhea Pullen, and my co-host is the Executive Director of Global Partners for Development, Daniel Casanova. Our guest today is Alex Counts. Alex is an author, an independent consultant to nonprofit organizations, and the founder of the Grameen Foundation. He has recently released a new edition of his book, Small Loans, Big Dreams. Well, so, I mean, I think where I'd start is so many people know about Grammy Bank and Muhammad Yunus, and I, you know, I'd like to hear about you and like how, mm -hmm. you, and I know that in the book you touch on this and stuff because there's background there, but I'm just curious, like, you know, start us out with mm -hmm. how you got to Bangladesh because that's like, you know, not a lot of people get to go there. Or... And like before you were 20, because I love the letter you wrote to him, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. I want to like... <laughs> Like kind of on my end. I want to use my background to make sure the whole world knows about it. Mm -hmm. And you're tw 20. Like, yeah, I, I, when I wrote to him, I couldn't legally buy and consume a beer in, <laughs> in, in Washington, D.C., where I happened to be at the time. Uh, it was, I mean, I was, first of all, I, w I was influenced. We were all growing as we go through high school. And there were some other students that cared about social issues like hunger, like making sure the Holocaust didn't happen again. And they didn't, they just got me thinking. And I always say to people, if you're an activist, you, you know, people may be thinking about what you're telling them. They're not doing anything yet, but, but you've planted a seed. And so some other students, through their activism, planted a seed for mine. I saw the movie Gandhi, mm -hmm. uh, and I was like, if that guy was still alive, I'd like complete my studies. And I just put myself in front of him and say, tell me what to do, sir. But he was not alive. So then I was like, where's the modern day Gandhi? And I started to think of Muhammad Yunus. And then a mentor, I've always sought out mentors in my life, I still am today. Um, and I said, uh, and my mentor said, well, you're so fascinated with this guy, Alex, why don't you write him a letter and tell him that you want to be of service to him uh, and he, taking his ideas global. And I wrote a kind of a grandiose letter that I'm glad has been lost. Uh, <laughs> I asked him, he, he files everything, but somehow that letter got lost, thank God. But as best I can recall, I said, I said, sir, You've come up with this wonderful thing in Bangladesh, empowering the women of your country, a grassroots revolution in economics and social uh, and part of your country, and, and I'm going to help you take it global yes. because I'm 19 years old and I know nothing, <laughs> but I have a lot of enthusiasm. I mean, I should have written that. I just I made myself seem like some amazing like, ally of his, and, uh, and he, you know, he had the decency and the generosity to write me back. Write an old-fashioned letter, and I was like, and I, and I, and I was so, like, he wrote me. And by the way, now young people that write me letters and want help, I can't say no, yeah. because Aww. he said yes to me. And so, so that letter came up, and then I'm like, how am I going to actually do this? And so I had to teach myself Bengali, uh, the wrong kind of Bengali, Calcutta Bengali. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, I, that that would work itself. A out. lot of has instead of she has. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> and uh, and. Um, and then I had to get financing for it. And my father, who was always a big backer of me, sent me a little money here and there to build up a fund, but ultimately the Fulbright program, which I'm a huge supporter of, public diplomacy, citizen diplomacy. It's, it's how we're gonna get this world back to the shape that it should be in. And, and I just went there for what it originally was 10 months and it became six years. 
Um, and, and actually, in a way, once I gained some real useful experience um, with microfinance and just as I started to mature as a human being, um, I did actually become a strong ally of Muhammad Yunus taking his work global. Uh, it took me a lo lot longer to become useful than I thought, but this is the impatience of youth. Uh, and, and it all came from that. But I just, I wanted to be, I didn't necessarily want to invent something that would change the world. I wanted to find someone who'd already invented something that was changing the world. And I wanted to be like their lieutenant, their foot soldier. And that's what I got good at fundraising and good at building boards and all the little you know, things that you need to, to take a great idea. And there's so many out there, but have it have the impact it's meant to have. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, I, so diving deeper into things, I'd be curious, like, so in your book and also, but more like maybe that's not there, but in like your heart of hearts of your past that you know, mm -hmm. I'd be curious to hear about like, what are those moving anecdotal stories? Because I'd say like as a fundraiser, right? Like, mm -hmm. I'm sure you have that like down in terms of those things when someone's like, oh, can you tell us about the people that, mm -hmm. you know, this type of technology's helped? Yeah, well, I mean, what, what the, the basis of the microfinance technology and the way Grameen and Eunice do it, because it's, there have been lots of variations in, across the world, some really good, some not so good, uh, kind of perverted the idea of microfinance, uh, and that became a later story. That's the, what you, you become a victim of your own success in ways. But, <laughs> but the way that Muhammad Yunus did it, and many people who followed his, his principles, uh, you're, you're trying to build on the strength of people rather than address their weaknesses. And, and there's a whole literature that I learned later about strengths-based management um, of you're good at three things and you're lousy at five things, let's focus on those three yeah. and uh, forget about the other five. And that's what microfinance is, is a poor woman, uh, maybe even a destitute woman, um, she has all these lackings, education mm -hmm. and self-confidence and whatever, but, but there are a few things she's good at and one of them is surviving. Yeah. One of them is eking out a living with very few resources. And then you say, well, let's build on that strength. Uh, let's give you some uh, money. And it turns out there are actually some skills and confidence and drive that were kind of hidden and suppressed and a loan and a vote of confidence that mm -hmm. that loan represents, which is very important. So one of the stories in the book, um, very dramatic, of a family that had been ruined through lawsuits, frivolous lawsuits. and and just bad luck and natural disasters, but they knew how to make Indian sweets, really Bengali sweets, um, and, uh, and the building block of them, which is cottage cheese uh, of most Indian and Bengali sweets. And so they, so they kind of lost this skill and they just become day laborers, which is a brutal you know, type of way to earn a living in the, in the rural areas. Uh, and um, they were off in, in Manikunj, if you're familiar uh, there. And so with a loan starting at, at $75, um, they revived this business and this skill, and it took years. There's no very few quick fixes in mm -hmm. in trying to address something as deep as a you know poverty situation. And over the course of a decade, they built up this thriving business that they probably had, as best I could tell, 25 years earlier. And just one little story. So they had a contract with a, a sweet shop in Dhaka that they. Um, and they would deliver a, like a, basically a duffel bag full of cottage cheese or, wow. or two or half or three, whatever the, and, and every day they would deliver the cottage cheese and, um, and then they would get the order for the next day and they'd come back. And so how do they do that? They, 10 miles on a bike to the bus stop, 60 mile, um, 60 kilometer, I guess, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, bus ride. 
And then they deliver it, and then they get back on the bus, and they come back and repeat it every day. It was a good source of income. How long is that round trip? You know, a couple of, it's probably four hours. Oh, wow. If um, things go right on the bus. If things are going well, right? <laughs> and so, and so here, here is a situation. Again, a skill that would lay dormant. A $75 loan started to unlock it. Now, now they had all their cows, and because they could now that the price of milk didn't impact them because they had their own. But anyway, um, there was a two-week general strike, a Hartal. Um, and so buses weren't running because the, the hooligans that were in favor of whatever party called it would beat up the bus drivers. Yeah. So that I can't, finally I get back to the village and I said, what happened? You, did you lose the contract uh, did, or did they give you grace for not being able to deliver the, the cottage cheese? I mean, like a, a, a big duffel bag full of cottage cheese, like it's not, like it weighs a lot. And they looked at me like, no, no, no. I, um, we just, instead of, instead of getting rid of our bikes at the bus stop, we would just bike on 60 kilometers to Dhaka to deliver that, and then we'd bike back. And so instead what? of taking the bus, we would do that. And like every day for two weeks, this was like the the father and the son of the. Wow. So like so like that level of entrepreneurship and dedication to a business. Once they had that, and it all got unlocked. A family that was just day laborers scraping by. Next thing you know, a thriving business that again they're and they're you know that they're keeping a contract despite everything conspiring against them. And these are stories, and also in the United States, um, mm -hmm. where I followed microfinance early efforts to get it going there, and that same drive and determination and latent skills being invested in, and, and then people, you just wake up a couple of years and a, and a person and a family, don't, you don't recognize them because mm -hmm. they're thriving where they used to be barely surviving. You said something that I actually wrote down and listened to again about how we grossly underestimate the capabilities of the poor. Yeah. And I've seen that so much just in the work I've been doing the last year, just because I think I had my own preconceived notions mm -hmm. of poverty and the poor before I moved over to the sector, just growing up quite privileged, you know? Mm -hmm. And when you said that, it just, and because of I've seen it also just traveling, what kind of awareness do we need to give to people? Because I think there is this misconception that they're not as capable or as smart. And I think you have completely debunked that. And just how can we spread that kind of awareness? Well, I, I, I think, yeah, first of all, we don't have a lot of contact with people living in mm. conditions of poverty if we're not ourselves. Some do, but most of us don't. And so we kind of, we put onto them, like we think about, well, what if I had no education? And what if I had didn't have, these advantages, like I'd be in pretty bad shape. Uh, and, uh, and that's what must be, and, and the way Muhammad Yunus created Grameen Bank, he wasn't trying to create a bank. He just went out when he was not teaching at Chittagong University um, into a nearby village and just had like, like thousands of conversations with local people about their lives, not trying to lecture them about mm -hmm. what they should be doing. Just tell me about your life. What's, how do you make ends meet? Uh, tell me about your children. I mean, he would, encyclopedic knowledge of all these families and the names of their children and grandchildren just through all these. So he had that exposure and he got the, mm -hmm. like, the reality check. And the truth is that if any of the three of us were to be plopped down into a, you know, in, in, without access to our credit cards and our connections and our whatever, and you were to bring us down and then imagine the language issue is in a barrier and you say, okay, go survive. Oh, um, and, and, you, and you'd look around and you would, you'd see people without with the same access to resources you had, kind of making it work, and we would fail horribly. Completely. <laughs> and um, and so and so we we so that's the reality is that people are highly skilled jugglers. They they you know they they have like three businesses and they like do one business for two weeks and they realize oh market's going bad on that we'll do this other one, 
And there's a great video that I used to, I, the person who taught my course at University of Maryland used it and I was, wasn't gonna use it and I watched it, it was incredible. It's called Living on One Dollar. Mm. Three college students went to Guatemala and they, and they basically mimicked what it would be like to live on one dollar a day, which a lot of the world, a billion people do. And they said, one of the things is they said, living on one dollar doesn't mean you get a dollar a day. It means you get four dollars, zero, zero, two, zero, zero, one, and yeah. it's unpredictable. Yeah. And they spent a whole summer doing that and they filmed it. And, and they almost, like, they, it, like, they were wrecks. And, then, and, they, and, they, and they finally then got the hang of it by the end of the summer and they planted some whatever and they realized that maximize their caloric intake which was limited, but to, you know, they, they should eat this type of food. Mm. But like they basically caught up with the poor people of Guatemala and how to actually live on $1. It's, it's, a, it's an acquired wow. skill. And it was interesting. They, they were kind of skeptical about microfinance. They said at the beginning of the documentary, and it turned out a program modeled on Grameen that was operating in the next village that where they settled in, run by, at the national level, a friend of mine, um, they realized how important that was uh, and, mm -hmm. and how it, the poor people, they, why some of them were kind of getting ahead um, and it was that a couple of years before they arrived and it's on Netflix. It's really okay. worth watching. Okay. And it just, it just, it, it's a, it's a great, short of spending the hours like Muhammad Yunus did talking to poor people and getting that reality check. It's like put it, people like us, young people, smart people, but realizing that surviving on $1 a day, it requires skills that we don't have, we can develop, uh, but they already have. And the question is, how do you invest in those skills? How do you value those skills? And that's what Muhammad Yunus did. Yeah, I see that just because I'm a mom. I have like a five and a nine-year-old. And when we were in East Africa, seeing the kids younger than mine taking care of the cattle next to the busy street, the helicopter parents of Sonoma and Marin County would be appalled. They'd be like, oh no, you can't get too close to the street. And so I'm just looking at these kids. And I'm you like, grow up fast. they are yeah. more capable than a lot of like adults that I've seen here. Yeah. <laughs> Very true. Yeah, I remember when I lived in when I was living in Cox Bazaar, there'd be this little chai shop we go to, and it was run by this like seven-year-old and six-year-old brother. They were like doing everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's just yeah, that's interesting. Those are that. skills they'll learn that my kids will never learn because they're not having to. You know, yes, they don't have that four-year bachelor's degree, but the amount of skills that they have learned, a six and seven-year-old mm -hmm. running a chai shop. Yeah. Those are skills you learn in business school later on. <laughs> but I mean, and they'll learn different skills, yeah. and they'll be able to abstract and conceptualize things and, and whatever. But the point is, we forget that the survival, the mere fact that people in poverty are still alive, should tell us that they're highly skilled in ways that different from the way we're skilled. And so let's invest. Let's not see them as charitable cases. Mm -hmm. Oh, you need this. Yeah. You need me to teach you that. You no. Um, mostly no, it's about no, what, how can I help you unlock your and leverage your skills that actually I lack for your benefit. And then you aggregate that all across 80,000 villages in Bangladesh and that ends up being a national success story. And poverty has come down rapidly in Bangladesh and it's not because the government's done a good job because mostly they haven't. It's not because <laughs> the business community has done a great job, but a few success stories. Um, but it's because this grassroots revolution that Grameen and BRAC and other great organizations that kind of adopted Grameen's and, you know, adapted what they were doing 
And it's one of the great kind of grassroots economic and social success stories of, of our time. Yeah. I mean, so I want, you've touched on it a little bit as you were, I, these are like my, the hard questions. Not, these are not gotcha questions in any way, in this way, but I feel like there's two things that I, oh, you're like, there will no more. I know because you, you mentioned it, which is like, you know, there are people that have taken the model yeah. and, and, and perverted it, or this, it's, it just looks different. And right, and it's like, there's a lot of ways to talk about microfinance. They, they, are, they aren't all the same. Every country isn't the same, right? Like what, what, how you apply it. So there's, I, you know, my, my question is more like, can you speak more to that? Sure. What do you, you know, what do you think? Because in my mind, the, the simple criticism would be like, you know, not everybody's, a, not every poor person's an entrepreneur, mm -hmm. right? I mean, but I'm sure you've heard, this is the, just like, there are these bites you hear about microfinance and those things, there, there were some, you know, negative studies on it and you mm -hmm. see and you go like, okay, but I'm curious what you'd say to that, so. Well, you know, I, I do try to address some of these critiques in the third edition of my book, Small Loans, Big Dreams, because they didn't really exist in 2008 when the second edition mm -hmm. came out. And I, and I try to, in a balanced way, and a, not because some of the critiques have some elements of truth in them. Uh, like that, the one about not everyone is an entrepreneur, that's a big critique. Because Muhammad yeah. Yunus, he talks in broad strokes like a lot yeah. of great people. He doesn't bring a lot of nuance. So he says, everyone has the potential to be an entrepreneur. We just need to invest in them. The truth is, of grooming borrowers, probably 20% of them, like Noni Bala, who I was just talking about, like is like it has that entrepreneurial gene. Like if she mm -hmm. had, she could have been Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos if she had all the advantages. And 80% of them are what I call, you know, kind of entrepreneurs by necessity. Mm -hmm. um, and they're not, they're, they don't have the skill that Noni Bala has, but it doesn't mean that lacking other alternatives having them go into running a business, maybe not terribly well, but well enough to keep them alive, and then giving them that $75 to do that a little bit with a little more capital. It's, it may not be their best calling, but it is the only option. Um, and so, and to, so to say, well, they would prefer employment. Well, great, then give them a job. But if you're not gonna give them a job, <laughs> yeah, let yeah. them do something and let, and let... The other thing is, have people taken Muhammad Yunus's idea and not applied it faithfully. First of all, some have done it beautifully. Some have innovated on top of it and are doing it even better than he did uh, in, in some ways. But there, I think there are three cases and I, I think it's important to realize. And by the way, this is a victim of our success. Mm. You get the Nobel Peace Prize, <laughs> yeah. you get the media attention and, and people are going to take your idea and do wonderful things with it and because you're now in the spotlight and people are gonna do some not so wonderful things with it. And then you just have to manage that as best you can. So. Um, so one is that people like apply his model, but they take some shortcuts that make it easier. Mm. Like for example, one of the things he did is a matter of principle. He said, I, when I start this organization, I wanna have the borrowers of this organization own a majority of the shares in it. Now Card in the Philippines and uh, a few in India did that, but like, so lots of shortcuts. It, it kind of makes it easier, but it also undercuts some key elements of what mm. he built that was just so special. Then there are other people that, um, I think got a little greedy um, and they just saw it more as a way to, because they realized, I mean, he shed the light on this fact that the hardworking poor women of the world uh, represent an engineered economic growth who can actually not only take your loan and repay it, but repay it with interest. Mm -hmm. um, and you can, and in some markets, you can actually make money off of it. And so people focused on the making money part and then they would say, oh, and we're doing so much good, but they really prioritized the making money for their organization, for themselves. So the values got, no, listen, if you're doing it ethically, if you're, cause you know, I'm not against banking, they were just doing <laughs> banking 
and uh, from a profit maximization standpoint and trying to serve poor women. And probably a lot of them benefited, but then you're losing the real heart and soul of it. It's mm -hmm. not a shortcut. It's just, a, it's a different, coming from a different values place. And then there were some people who were just trying to actually exploit people um, and were, and, and were like, and would come up with all means to make it sound like they were charging a low interest rate and they were charging a, a, a totally unreasonable interest rate and taking advantage of people. And, uh, and it was just, it was evil. Uh, not so. So you have people who are just taking a little shortcut. You have people who were kind of had mixed values, different values, but still probably creating some good. And then there were the crooks. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then we, as an industry, we tried to you know kind of how do you police that? How do you protect the brand? And it's not easy, but we came up with some things we thought you know did a reasonably good job at that. Yeah. But it was a victim yeah. of his success, our success right. in scaling this idea. Is people with all sorts of motivations and priorities, it was on their radar and a lot of them tried to do something with it. Some did wonderful things, some not so wonderful mm -hmm. things. Yeah. But still, I mean, I get at the core of it, it's like people need banking. Yeah. And like, it, you know, as simple of an idea as being like, oh, you can, poor people can bank. Yeah. <laughs> well, and yeah, if you just break it down and you know, you don't say, well, minimum loan is $50,000, then, yeah. you know, then you, by the rules, you're excluding it or you need to have collateral or you yeah. need to be literate. But but Professor Yunus said those, those rules are not actually needed. They're convenient, they're traditional, but they're not, they're not actually relevant if you just create other ways to let people participate. So he re-engineered banking to be relevant to the poor women of his country. Um, and it, didn't, it took a lot, but it wasn't that complex. And then he just stayed committed when he realized he could charge them more interest or he could serve non-poor people. And he said, I don't wanna do that, I could yeah. do that but I don't want to do that. I want to stick to getting every last 8 million women of Grameen out of poverty. And then once I do that, then I'll think about applying this in different ways. Until then, I got my job cut out for me. So where do you think they are in, in, on that path then? Well, he, he created, you know, Grameen, one of the things as a social entrepreneur you need to do is, and, and this is where I think the nonprofit sector kind of falls behind the business sector, is we, we get onto something we're comfortable with that works pretty well, and we stop innovating. And because, uh, you know, maybe my job will go away. Maybe this, the, the, the pressure of the market to be, continue to innovate doesn't exist in the same way. And Grameen is kind of a hybrid nonprofit, for-profit. And, and so at a certain point, the, the original Grameen model stopped kind of working that well. And, and there was criticism. There was a front page article in the, criticizing on the, on the Wall Street Journal, uh, and, uh, which was wrong in a lot of ways, but right in some ways too. And so Professor Yunus, by that point, he was reinventing the Grameen methodology. And, um, and so uh, he, and what we came, we, we, we ended up calling Grameen 2. Yeah. And it, it de-emphasized peer pressure on people, which can, in some cases, become a, a negative force in a village. It prioritized savings. And one of the things he did is he came up with a, um, a kind of a five-star rating system for branches. And it three of the, things were around how their financial performance as a branch, and two of them were around, uh, is every child of every growing borrower in school, 100%, that's how you get your fourth star. Wow. And fifth star is every borrower in that, in that served by that branch, might be three or 4,000, is out of poverty. And they created a simple checklist about whether they were um, out of poverty. And, um, and every year they would do an audit, and they would say, we're getting closer. We have a few poverty-free groups of five women, and then a few you know, villages, but not everyone. And so that became an accountability mechanism. And last I heard, you know, maybe 
you know, 60% of the borrowers were out of poverty using their kind of checklist. Uh, most of the, some of the rest were just new borrowers. They hadn't had the chance yet. And, and so they were, they were making, the percentage was going up every year, but the main thing is they measure it because we, we, you know, and that's where some microfinance groups that didn't quite follow took the shortcuts. They just said, well, if the people are repaying their loan, they must be doing well. Maybe yes, maybe no. Yeah. But Muhammad Yunus didn't want to take that for granted. He wanted to say, no, let's, let's you know, do they have a, 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 do they have a, tin, a tin roof, a roof that mm. keeps them dry in the monsoon? Are all the kids in school? Do they have, you know, three nutritious meals a day? Um, and, uh, and then he would literally ask every borrower that every year. Eight million women, he would ask wow. this question because, you know, you measure what you value and you value what you measure. And so that's where he didn't want to take it for granted that uh, a, a client who was was fulfilling their responsibilities to the bank, were they also fulfilling their responsibilities to their family to get out of poverty? Maybe yes, maybe no. Let's check it out. Yeah, that's cool. I like the focus on women. Um, I always say, you know, since I, I took a break from using my MBA now because I became a mother, and what you were saying um, that women will do what they need to survive and to take care of their children. Mm -hmm. And so I... I see that, and I and I heard that that the focus on women will actually more benefit the family unit, as opposed to the man taking control of the finances. How much have you seen in that, of like the percentage of the borrowers? Is it mostly women? Do you mostly focus on women? And what is the percentage of women to men? So Grameen, I mean, first of all, women have. I just think on average there are exceptions. Women, I mean, look at, look, at the, look at the men and women in the Trump administration and who is coming forward to actually say what needs to be said. It's the women who are there. Yeah. They have more of a conscience. I mean, do, do men abandon their children when going gets rough? Sometimes they do. do. Does a woman abandon her children when going gets rough? Almost never. No. Across all the cultures I'm familiar with. So Muhammad Yunus had three critiques of the banking system. Core, many others, but three core. It was anti-poor, anti-illiterate, and anti-women. And so he said, I'm going to make it so if you're poor, we prioritize you. If you're illiterate, we'll figure out how to make that work. And 50% of the borrowers will, should be women. Mm. Um, half and half. Same like they're... He, that was the V1 of Grameen. That was where it started. And then he realized that when a man makes a profit in the business, um, the profit goes, some of it to the family, some of it back in the business, some of it to kind of conspicuous consumption so he can go out in front of his male friends and seem like he's like doing well and have a nice watch oh, and goodness. all this and maybe alcohol and maybe whatever. And with the women, on average, when, when she earned a profit, almost all of it went into either growing the business or into the health and education and nutrition of the children. She had a strategy for how does poverty stop with this generation? Mm. And it may not, she might not be able to articulate it in like a very sophisticated way, but like that was like her number one priority. And so I would go around the villages and I would in the afternoon and I would see like a college student sitting under a tree with four or five students. And it's because the Grimmie borrowers hired private tutors, college students, and paid them like $7 a month or something to tutor their kids so they have a chance of passing the, the exams that in the, in the British you know, Indian Bangladeshi system, if you don't pass a certain exam, like it's like SAT here, but like if you don't get enough of a grade, you don't go on to the next level of, it's not like you go to a bad college, you just don't go to oh, college. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so they're like, 
you know, the school isn't alone isn't going to do it. So they're hiring private tutors, you know, people whose poverty status even then was still significant. But I mean, how many people in middle class people around the world said <laughs> private tutor for that? Let them just do the best they can. Yeah. I can't afford that. So, so that, so that, 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 that conscience of the woman that, and that strategy to get the children out of poverty, I don't want them to experience what I experienced mm-hmm. when they're adults, was like a, just a, a, a strong drive. So Mohammed Yunus said, forget it. From here on out, all the new borrowers pretty much will be women. And so now Grameen Bank, I think of 95% of the borrowers are women. He didn't, wow. he didn't kick out the men who joined in the first five or eight years. And, and when they left, they could be replaced by another man. But no... Other than that, other than the natural replacement, all new borrowers since really about 1980, uh, no, probably about 1983, have been women. And then when he says, take, take this model and bring it to India or Pakistan or Uganda, start with 100% women from day one. I, just, I had to learn, but you don't, you don't have to go through that. And of course, what you're doing is you're, you're, you're lending to the family. Like mm-hmm. in, a, in these rural or urban slums, I mean, the, the business, it's all... It's, everyone, the whole family is involved um, in it, just like your tea stall that you were talking about, where the you know seven or eight year old are doing that, you know, at some points. But make the the representative of the family to the bank be the mother. Right. And now some of that money will go to the husband because he may have a business, and some may go. But put her in control. Yep. Foreground her, background the rest. It works better. Mm. So uh, so he would and lots of programs. I'd say the majority of programs that are modeled on Grameen. Uh, based on his advice, they they only lend to women from day one, and they they continue doing that to this day. Very cool. Well, so I, we, I, we're taking up a lot of time, but I um I you know in prefacing this interview, I talked about the thing we want to hear from people. So I don't know if like right now, if there's something like as you teach, maybe there's something you like feel like when you have had a class of students, there's this thing that you want them to know or understand. But is there something that you understand particularly well that's really important to share with people right now? Well, I think at its core, you know, we, we get overwhelmed with the problems facing society. And then we kind of get into, in, into a sense of whether it's the political crisis in the U.S., whether it's bullying, whether it's kids in foster care being taken care of. These are things, uh, climate change, poverty. And we get, we get overwhelmed and we just say there's nothing that can be done and we get kind of hopeless and de- demobilized. And, and the other side of that that I talk to people about in the context of microfinance, nonprofit management, is there are a ton of solutions out there to all these problems um, to, and, um, and more coming up every day. Yeah. And, uh, and people that come up with them, some of them it's with a profit motive and that's okay. That's okay. That's, it's a powerful force. Um, but um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to sell these books. I'm not giving them away uh, that I've written and, uh, and and all. But but some of them have just tried to invent these things, whether it's clean water or whatever. They're they're trying to because they want humanity to be better. Like they're they're okay. They've they've got some economic base, but they see pain around them, the the pain of the planet, the pain of the world's women, the pain of uh, people who have disabilities, and they just like let's solve that. Let's invent something. And what's lacking is people is that making those solutions visible and making it easy for people to join in t- taking those solutions to their natural expansion and impact. Uh, and that's again, that, that's what I did. I just, I got on a microfinance. It's not the only solution out there. It might not even be the best, but it's one that I said, I'm going to make it my life's work mm-hmm. to scale this. And there are solutions to climate change. 
There are solutions to bullying. There are solutions to the terrible state of education in this country for all but like the best schools. And and then it's and let let's create a way that because also the risk of the nonprofit sector is that we professionalize nonprofits so much that we kind of exclude everyone who doesn't work for a nonprofit. Just give us money and just stay out of the way. No. The beauty of the microfinance movement, and uh, someone, a guy by the name of Sam Daly Harris, another mentor of mine, and who started something called Results, which is where uh, Anna and I uh, met, he, he intuitively got that the, the magic of creating social change is around making everyone feel like they're a change maker. Yes. They're not just a check writer and then just you know, sit in the stands and watch, the, watch it. And so, uh, you know, so when, he's, when he launched the Microcredit Summit campaign, he, did, he said there's a role for the people who practice microfinance who are doing this work, but let's create a council of education institutions and people in education, how they can contribute, and religious organizations and political leaders and uh, civic organizations like Rotary, and let's figure out how each of them can do their best to bring this solution. And so like, you had to have been part of at least one organization that was, that was kind of mapped out as part of the solution here. Like no one was off the hook. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, it's uh, like that cross-sector partnership. Yeah. And so, and, and, and they would say to people around the world, uh, I was just reading the biography of a great microfinance leader from Nigeria, and he'd create these kind of also information, like which African countries are, are doing the best, and because we want to get, you know, half of all poor families get microfinance, and so don't worry about your country or the world, just the village you're in, get half of them. And like, oh, I can manage that. And so mm -hmm. breaking down problems, and people feel like, I can do that. And that was his brilliance. So he so the, he said there was a time where like Nigeria is falling behind. You know, I, Sam was putting out these reports, and it was a terribly underfunded campaign, less than a million dollars a year. But it it just created a global movement uh, for this solution. So Nigeria is like we're falling behind other African countries. How are we going to catch up? What are we going to learn from them? And so so it made everyone was kind of in the driver's seat mm -hmm. um, of trying to scale this. And and I just one of the things I'm trying to do in my writings and teachings and consulting is to try to, when, when you have a solution, make it possible for almost everyone, if they have some excess time and, and talent and money, but money is just the start, um, to feel like, like they're not in the stands, they're not watching on TV, put them on the playing field. Yeah. That's how we're going to, that's how we're going to solve these problems. And yes, we need new solutions, but there's so many out there and we just need to give people a sense of agency and network them with each other. And, and what are the best practices in doing it? And it's and, and just magic happens. That's amazing. So we usually end with, what is something you're working on right now? I know you're going around talking about your book. Is what something you're working on right now and a project you're looking forward to that you're really excited about? Well, I'm, you know, I, I think one of the things you need to do in, in nonprofits and in the commercial sphere, it has its own equivalent of sales, is you need to raise money. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I learned early in my career, I was the reluctant fundraiser, the delegating fundraiser. I want to spend the money. I don't want to raise the money. We have lots of thoughts on that. Um, I wouldn't wish fundraising on my worst enemies. Yeah, well, well we're, we need to talk. We're going to talk after. We need to talk. But it, it, the reality is fundraising, I used to, I used to kind of uh, want to avoid fundraising at all costs. I came to love fundraising so much that I neglected other parts of my job because I just couldn't bring myself away from fundraising. And so we've, most of it, we've, we've created this debilitating idea around what fundraising is. And, and the most common thing I would hear from committed volunteers would be, over the course of my career, was, I'll do anything to help your organization because I love your mission, except fundraising. Because I'm not good at it, and I don't like to do it. 
And so it's amazing so much money gets raised in this country given how many people have a really disempowering idea around it. And so I learned that fundraising was about at its core, and I wrote a different book called Changing the World Without Losing Your Mind, about how you can, you can adopt a disempowering view if you want to, but you, you can think of fundraising as developing win-win partnerships. Mm -hmm. The donor wins, the fundraiser wins, the organization wins, and the cause wins if the organization can execute. And it's like, it's like being a matchmaker and like, and like a quarter of the matches you make people go off and get married and have happy lives that they wouldn't have had without you. Like that's what fundraising is to me. And the rest of them, they have a few dates and it's cool and, or they just say, <laughs> sorry, no one's mad at you for, uh, if you go with that spirit of, I just want to partner you with an organization and a cause that you weren't aware of that will serve your deepest values mm -hmm. and give something you have in excess money, um, uh, if you do, and a lot of people do, um, to, and if you don't have excess money, then commit your time. Um, and, and, then, and so what I'm really excited about is transforming people's relationship with fundraising and, uh, and making it something that they do joyfully um, and, that they, and that they just can't pull themselves away as opposed to trying to avoid. And I'm, 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 I've launched something, I've, I've long connections with not only Bangladesh but India. And in the, in the next March, we're going to create the first uh, of its kind an India Giving Day, a day to celebrate giving from the U.S., mostly people of Indian heritage, to India. And rather than doing it reluctantly or out of a place of guilt or in a very transactional way, to do it from a place of joy and contribution and partnership. Uh, and, uh, and so I'm very excited about that. But it's part of a larger agenda is let's make, let's make fundraising what it really can be, mm -hmm. which is about partnering people. Because, you know, listen, if I had millions of dollars and I care about climate change, what can I do on my own? Uh, I only have 24 hours in a day, and I'm not a scientist. But if I could find a, an organization that has those capabilities to do the things I can't do or can't do enough, like that serves me. Mm -hmm. um, like it's so much more efficient to try to solve it in partnership with organizations that have built up solutions and capabilities that I can't, you know, I, to, to develop them myself or to build them would just be very inefficient. Uh, and, and so I'm trying to create uh, some new ideas around fundraising uh, and the people that take this idea on uh, some of them, like, just they come back to me six, 12 months later, like, I'm raising a lot more money. I'm having a lot more fun doing it. Like, it works. And I've come up with some ideas that are even better than yours. Go, tell me what they are. We'll come back to you in a year, and I really hope to have the same story. <laughs> I, I, I know you will. Let's go. Thank you so much for joining us. This was such an enlightening conversation. Thank yeah. you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks a lot, man. At Global Partners for Development, our mission is to advance community-led initiatives that improve education and public health in East Africa. We envision a world in which every East African community has the capacity to implement dynamic, sustainable solutions to the challenges they face. To learn more, visit gpfd.org.